Welcome to Immigration Nerds. In order to not be completely in the woods for this discussion, here are some things you need to know. When USCIS is adjudicating petitions, they use an applicant's job details among other criteria to determine if he or she can continue along the H-1B process. However, in recent years, this adjudication has become more strict, leading to an increase in denials without a real understanding as to why. So today, Associate Director of Government Relations at AILA, Diane Risch, joins Immigration Nerds, along with EIG attorneys Hibba Amver and Storm Eastep to uncover this why. Essentially, through FOIA requests and painstaking litigations, AILA, along with American Immigration Council, won access to USCIS documents that reveal adjudication practices for H-1B petitions. In simple terms, they received and made public the USCIS playbook. What she learned after gaining access to the vault is up next. Legal practitioners, this one's for you. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. The experience for a lot of immigration practitioners who file H-1B visas is that this particular visa type has gone from one of the uh, petitions that was relatively straightforward to probably the most difficult visa petition to get approved. And the reason that it's getting increasingly difficult to get approved, I think, is something that I would ask Storm to comment sure, on in yeah. terms of the types of issues we've been encountering. Yeah, and, th and this kind of leads into uh, the work that the American Immigration Lawyers Association, or AILA, has been doing with uh, these FOIA requests that we will get to. The, the H-1B has a few different determinations that have to be made um, in order to even file the, the petition. And so first, uh, the, the category itself is for specialty occupation work. But this is defined as an occupation that requires theoretical and practical application of a body of highly specialized knowledge and the attainment of a bachelor's or higher in the specific specialty or its equivalent as a minimum for entry into the occupation into the United States. So basically you have to meet a certain threshold with respect to your technical skills that mm -hmm. are related to the position as well as your education. Correct. Yep. Uh, the position itself requires this, right? Uh, a big part of this that has come up recently are the different wage levels is what they're called. And we're going to be referring to them when we're talking about the FOIA requests. Just generally, it's really the qualification, the experience, etc., that you can break down different types of positions into. And these four wage levels just generally are, you have your entry level employees. So, you know, Normally, the work is being closely monitored by, by other professionals. Um, wage level two is qualified employees. These are employees who have a good understanding, and they can start to do things that require limited judgment, not quite at the level of wage level three, which are experienced employees who it's, you know, the language used is sound understanding. And this is where you start to see, you know, they are exercising judgment, um, and they start to have, you know, lead and senior and head in their job titles. And then finally, wage level four are, these are employees who a large part of their work is conducting complex tasks that require a lot of judgment. And they're actually usually almost always having uh, managerial supervisory duties uh, and oftentimes are running whole departments. And so you can start as an entry level software engineer and you can work all the way up throughout your whole career. And it's, you know, talked about in these four wage levels. So let's, let's, Take a step back and would it be a fair statement to say that you've got these uh, experience and skill requirements and you've got these wage levels, right? And then going back to what we're going to be talking about, which is this negative 
intense scrutiny that's being placed on the H-1B visa petition. It's basically the visa beneficiaries, skills, education, and wage that has now served as the basis for additional requests for evidence, which then ultimately become a basis for the government to, in some of our opinions, erroneously deny some of these petitions, right? Absolutely. Yep. Particularly in light of some of the things that we've talked about in the form of, you know, difficulties that practitioners are experiencing and negative scrutiny, we are extremely fortunate and honored to have Diane Risch, who is the Associate Director of Government Relations at the American Immigration Lawyers Association, here to specifically talk about what I consider to be a huge win, like a huge milestone and accomplishment that AILA has essentially achieved. I know for a fact that myself as a practitioner is going to be benefiting from. So in this current climate, what it is that AILA has done in the form of FOIA litigation and the impact and benefits derived from the disclosure of these documents now as a result of your litigation? Absolutely, Hiba. So first and foremost, I'm absolutely delighted to be here today. Thank you so much to Erickson Immigration Group for really having an interest in this H-1B FOIA production, because as you mentioned, really is significant and substantial the documentations that we were able to achieve through this FOIA litigation, thanks to the tremendous work of the American Immigration Council, which is the organization that in fact filed this lawsuit on behalf of AILA. So to take a quick step back, what is a FOIA? So a FOIA stands for the Freedom of Information Act. It is a law enacted in 1966 that essentially requires the federal government to release documents requested by individuals that it has in its control. Uh, those documents, however, could be partially or permanently withheld if there are certain exemptions that apply. So the government can retain documents based on national security uh, concerns, law enforcement investigations that are ongoing to protect privacy concerns, among other things. So I should note, as a result of our FOIA production, we did have a number of documents that are redacted. Many folks that go onto our website to see the FOIA production will likely see the exemption B5, which stands for for attorney-client privilege. So there was a lot of negotiation back and forth during the lawsuit in terms of what documents the agency was willing to disclose to us, and we did push back as much as possible uh, to ensure that any documentation that was being withheld for exemptions was properly being exempted. So I think it would be important for us to point out that whenever you're dealing with federal government Mm, documents, you're talking about almost like an inaccessible vault, right? So for example, if an individual files a personal injury lawsuit or a divorce case at like the state level, you can probably go on the district court's website and probably pull at least some petitions or, you know, legal documents that are associated with that case. When it comes to immigration, for example, which gets filed with the federal government, there really is no way to obtain any sort of record, which is, would it be fair to say why the ability to get the government to disclose so many documents was such a huge win in terms of like the litigation? Sure. Well, it really depends. I should say that the agencies can and do in many cases provide documents to the public if they wish to do so. You can find on the USCIS website in their electronic reading room, they do disclose a number of documents, policy memos, but that is handpicked, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't necessarily have access to all the government uh, documents. And why this FOIA production was so significant was essentially we had been hearing 
hearing from hundreds of ALA members across the country, uh, as well as stakeholders in the public, U.S. employers, among other things, about a really significant shift in adjudication practices. This really started to occur in the summer of 2017. Uh, ALA was started receiving reports. Uh, we did a call for examples to ask our members and the public to submit their examples to us so that we could better understand the scope of what appeared to be a problematic trend. Mm -hmm. As a result of that call for examples, we received over 400 case examples of requests for evidence, essentially where the government was requesting additional information relating to the level wage that had been identified on the labor condition application associated with the H-1B petition. Uh, as a result of these call for examples and uh, recognizing after reaching out to the agency and in the media, essentially the agency was almost indicating it was business as usual, as if nothing had changed uh, from an adjudication perspective, that we decided to move forward with a FOIA request so that we could better understand the adjudication practices and policies behind what appeared to be a new trend, a new uh, adjudication practice. Our forced FOIA request was submitted in September 2017, specifically relating to how the USCIS was assessing the wage level designated on an LCA in adjudicating the H-1B petition. Mm -hmm. Continuing to receive reports throughout the end of 2017 into 2018 regarding how the agency was shifting its interpretation of specialty occupation Ayla followed up with a second FOIA request in April 2018 in order to find out more about how the agency was interpreting specialty occupation within the context of the H-1B visa program. Right. And, and one thing to point out here, too, USAS's stance is kind of business as usual. The public is saying there's no way this is business as usual. We have all these examples that have never existed before. Even doing taking advantage of uh, USAS's their electronic reading room and things that they would like to disclose sort of thing, no, no mention of any of this. That is correct. Yeah, I would say right around this time period, uh, we did have two essential pronouncements from the government that I think looking back at, we can point to and say, aha, this is likely where this all uh, emanated from. And mm -hmm. essentially, we can look back to the March 31st first 2017 a memo commonly known as a computer programmer memo i think it's important to note before i talk about why this memo was so important to our industry is the fact the date in which it was released so it was released on march 31st <laughs> the date in which uh, thousands of u.s employers were filing h-1b petitions mm -hmm. across mm -hmm. the country for the h-1b cap that that opened that following monday so i think we see this policy memo pronouncement coming out uh, at very last minute. Uh, essentially, it was applied effective immediately to all the cap filings that were filed for that year, as well as any future H-1B petitions. Do you think that that is uh, indicative of the government's intent to make things arguably unreasonably difficult? Because announcing it on the 31st means that there's absolutely nothing now that the petitioner and beneficiary can do to try to insulate their petition from that right. sort of scrutiny, right? Yeah, but that's a great question. And I think the FOIA production does not tell us really what led up to that March 31st release date. But we do know and we can point to other policies that the administration has released over the past two years since taking office that have really been under this similar type of scenario where they release the policy memo the day of, it becomes immediately effective. And then adjudicators, the public, businesses are all scrambling to further understand what it means. And that would, you would probably uh, 
can relate to the travel ban that came out in January 2017. Mm -hmm. We've seen this happen with policies, memos relating to the uh, notice to appear, unlawful presence for students. So this is a very much, this is, this kind of aligns with what we have been seeing uh, for months and months about how this administration is implementing uh, immigration law, how it's administering immigration law, and certainly it is very problematic for, for stakeholders and all involved. So you mentioned the significance of the computer programmer memo, particularly in light of the date on which it was released. But what are some of the other reasons why this particular memo was so significant in your opinion and how it impact subsequent litigation? So the computer programmer memo made two major policy pronouncements. First, it rescinded prior guidance from December 2000 that generally recognized the position of computer programmer as one that would merit eligibility as a specialty occupation under the H-1B visa program. The memo essentially states that computer programmer positions should not be generally presumed to meet the requirements of an H-1B specialty occupation. And as a justification in the memo, the agency points to the Department of Labor's Occupational Outlook Handbook that indicates that because it says that individuals with an associate's degree may enter the occupation of computer programmer, an entry-level computer programmer position would generally not qualify for an H-1B petition. Sorry, yeah, an H-1B visa, because by definition, a specialty occupation requires, at a minimum, a bachelor's or higher degree in the specific specialty. And then secondly, in a footnote, the memo also instructs adjudicators to consider the wage level designated in the LCA to ensure that it corresponds to the proffered position. Both of these policy announcements resulted in significant changes in which the H-1B petition was being, and it continues to be, adjudicated. And the FOIA documents that we will be talking about shortly really reveal how that was the case. And so then what was the second memo or development that guided this? Sure. Well, I think the second big policy pronouncement that we can look to as practitioners, as members of the public, is the uh, Buy American, Hire American executive order that was released by the president in April of 2017. In that executive order, President Trump directs a review of the H-1B visa program aimed at ensuring that visas are awarded to the most skilled and highest paid applicants. And so what we then later see, it appears as if the agency is trying to adjudicate their H-1B petitions in a way that would award it to the most highly paid applicants. But as Storm had indicated earlier in the podcast, the regulations are clear that the assessment about what wage level a applicant or the wage itself that an applicant has with respect to the position does not fall squarely within the assessment of what constitutes a specialty occupation for classification in the H-1B visa program. So does it seem like the government is making an assumption here that there are qualified U.S. workers, perhaps they have not obtained a bachelor's degree in computer science or computer programming, but they have certain skills. And US companies are favoring foreign workers when there are US workers who could, in theory, perform the same position. 
I do think that many who have worked very closely with the agency, with the administration under under the Trump administration, have really acknowledged that that largely that mentality is really reflected in what we are seeing in terms of immigration practices and adjudication standards. Exactly. That's part of what this uh, FOIA disclosure shows is that uh, without going through the proper channels of actually changing how the law is to is to be adjudicated, you know. Rather than going through the proper channels, we'll just uh, make changes via memorandum, which are oftentimes, you know, almost redetermining how a statute should be interpreted. From a practitioner standpoint, you file a certain type of case that's always been fine, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you start receiving these RFEs. So obviously you note a very clear trend in a particular direction. So in the interest of insulating and protecting your clients, you advise them of your observations about this trend, and then you see what you can do to further strengthen the petitions. And then after a short period of time, all of a sudden it's something else that's being RFE'd, and then it's something else that's being RFE'd. Mm -hmm. So Diane, you mentioned that you started to hear from many practitioners and members of ALA, were they specifically pointing to these changing trends and kind of like the unpredictability and this all of a sudden this shift on, you know, negatively focusing on things that have been fine in the past? Great question. So as an association, we represent over 15,000 immigration attorney members and law professors across the United States and around the world. So we do have access to a lot of trends and issues that are uh, that our members report to us about what is happening on the ground, in the field, out of the service centers. So with respect to the reports we were receiving in the summer of 2017, I would say that those um, reports were predominantly and almost entirely relating to requests for evidence from U.S. CIS questioning the wage level designated on the labor condition application that was then filed with the H-1B petition. I would say, though, later on in to early 2018, we started receiving reports of problematic trends relating to how the agency was interpreting specialty occupation. Members were sharing with us requests for evidence, notice of intent to deny, denials, and a notice of intent to revoke, all relating to that very issue. And so that's basically what guided Ayla's decision in terms of like the subject matter for the first FOIA and then the second FOIA, right? Absolutely, you're right. And, and when you said about, you know, what access do we have to information about what the agency was doing, we were trying to say, you know, what was publicly available at the time, uh, given that there wasn't uh, information publicly available about this change in adjudication, what appeared to be adjudication practices, uh, we filed a FOIA request uh, seeking documentations and records from the agency regarding training materials, memos, checklists, everything we could possibly request relating to how the wage level designated on the labor condition application was being factored in by adjudicators when adjudicating the H-1B petition. And Mm -hmm. subsequently, we requested a second FOIA asking for documentation relating to how the agency was interpreting specialty occupation, because you're exactly right. We had an inkling that the agency had shifted its adjudication practices, but had not disclosed that to the public. So that gives us a really good understanding of the FOIA requests that Ayla filed Mm -hmm. and the subject matter on which those FOIA requests were based. But... What led to the decision to litigate? Yeah, so 
To take a quick step back, so individuals can file a FOIA request. It can either be an individual or association like AILA. And you don't even have to be a U.S. citizen or anything, right? Like anyone, it's open to everyone. Yeah, and great, great point, um, Storm, mentioning about why FOIA is so important and who has access to it. Exactly. It is a law that was really intended for individuals to hold the government accountable and to ensure that it is transparent to its stakeholders. So in regard to the FOIA request that AILA submitted, uh, having not received a response back from the agency within the time frame required. So the agency has 20 days, 20 business days to respond and can extend that in some circumstances for up to 10 days, uh, having not received a response within a timely ma- manner, and recognizing the value and importance of these materials at, that they, as they relate to our immigration attorney members, as well as the public, and understanding how the administration is ministering its H-1B visa program, uh, we decided to pursue litigation in June of 2018. And that suit included both of those requests, right? The wage level request, and then there's also the specialty occupation. AILA is able to combine those both into one suit, correct? That is exactly right. In the June of 2018, the American Immigration Council represented AILA in a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security and USCIS in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia with respect to compelling the agency to uh, release the records that it was unlawfully withholding. We were very fortunate to have the ability to litigate. I should note that many organizations, many individuals may wait uh, months or years for a response to a FOIA request. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, it might be highly redacted or the agency will withhold documents. So in light of the litigation that we were able to bring, we were able to further pursue all the documents we were able to achieve through the litigation. So litigation is or can be a fairly complex legal strategy, um, which oftentimes involves discovery requests and whatnot. So can you speak a little bit to the manner in which the discovery kind of played out in terms of this particular suit? Sure. So in order to avoid a protracted litigation scenario, a lot of the work uh, relating to this lawsuit involved negotiating with the agency directly. So with uh, agency counsel and with the AUSA. I think both parties, both the agency and AILA, had an interest in ensuring that, and I'm sure the agency really wanted to ensure that we didn't do a deep dive into the documents, they, all the documents they had. So uh, in, in essence, uh, a lot of negotiation, a lot of back and forth. Uh, documents were first disclosed to AILA in August of 2018, and the agency essentially said, okay, that's it, that's all. But in <laughs> fact, we decided to go back further and push back on what additional information was out there. We pushed back on redactions, exemptions claimed. That carried out really through all of 2018 into 2019. It really was not until July of this year, 2019, when uh, effectively we decided to settle the lawsuit after uh, documents uh, that are now available to the public uh, were disclosed by the agency. And and where uh, can the public find these? Yes, so all of the documents that were produced as part of this FOIA lawsuit are now available on the AILA website, and it is available to the public. Uh, You can look up the documents by inserting the AILA doc number for these documents, 190-91601. I think what's so important about the way that we've presented the documents is essentially you can see we've broken down, rather than just seeing like a large production of thousands and thousands of documents, we've broken it down by training materials, checklist, uh, template denials, uh, talking points, things that we thought that our members, the public would find beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did find it very beneficial <laughs> because I actually attempted to go through all 
pages of the disclosed documents and found your manner of kind of like segmenting and dividing very, very helpful. Upon review, people will inevitably discover that there are portions of the disclosed documents that are still redacted. So going back to what the litigation experience was like, you're saying that the initial round of documents released were even more redacted than that? Correct. So I want to help clarify a little bit. So all the documents we decided to release on the ALA website are everything. It is every production as of August 2018 until July of 2019. So I want to clarify that you might see documents in the production that are initially redacted that are later than unredacted. Mm. So oh, I hate the fact that you'll have to dig through, but essentially some of the documents, and I can flag a few, uh, were initially uh, withheld. So of the documents, the USCIS policy manual, volume two, relating to how the agency uh, interprets H-1B, specialty occupation, that was initially withheld and redacted substantially. We were able to get a lot of those redactions uh, removed, and now the public can see the policy manual in nearly full form uh, on the ALA website. So upon reviewing the release documents, we did notice that several of the documents had been redacted, or portions of those documents had been redacted. I was wondering if you could speak to why you think Homeland Security chose to redact those specific portions on those specific pages. Sure. For those that are looking at the documentation produced, they'll likely see uh, two exemptions, uh, exemption B5 and exemption B6. Uh, B5 is the predominant redaction that we see in this FOIA production, and it relates to attorney-client privilege or deliberative process uh, documents. Essentially, those are documents that essentially the agency is claiming, hey, you know, we were consulting with our attorneys, we were evaluating how we can sort of go about adjudicating cases in light of the relevant regulations regulations and statutes. So it does provide uh, the agency with some discretion about what to withhold and what not to withhold. Mm -hmm. So there is probably no better person to ask this question. So we're definitely going to take advantage of the fact that you're with us. But based on your review and, and Ayla's review, what are some of the key discoveries as a result of these documents? Sure. So I think there are a number of exciting discoveries within this FOIA production. I can name at least three. The first is that we see emails uh, confirming that USCIS under the Trump administration changed its interpretation of the H-1B specialty occupation in ways inconsistent with the regulations. Happy to point you to one of those emails. It was from the Vermont Service Center, basically sort of questioning. This was in April 2017, several days after the agency had released its March 31st computer programmer memo, essentially questioning and uh, sort of concerned about how the agency was shifting, how it was defining normally, so whether uh, whether a position normally requires a bachelor's degree. Historically, the agency has interpreted normally to mean most of the time uh, when looking at the Occupational Outlook Handbook or other materials submitted by the agency. And so we've observed that now the agency is writing out the word normal and reinterpreting it to mean always. So it, unless you can show that a bachelor's degree is always required in the occupation, uh, you do not qualify for a specialty occupation, or we're going to send you a RFE and really question that interpretation. 
The other really, um, really interesting and almost very troubling uh, email chain that I discovered while looking through the FOIA documents shows that USCIS rolled out its wage level policy, and that essentially was directing adjudicators to consider the wage level in the labor condition application when adjudicating the H-1B petition. Uh, it rolled out that policy without providing sufficient training and guidance to adjudicators on how to do that analysis. Wow. And we see that in several ways. In August 2017, nearly four months after the policy had come into place, we see an email from the Nebraska Service Center saying, we are holding thousands <laughs> of cases waiting for additional training materials so that we can train the adjudicators that we brought on to handle this workload. Then in March of 2018, so we're now nearly a year later, we see an email basically uh, indicating that the agency is providing clarifying guidance on how to conduct the wage level analysis. And then finally, we see an email from May of 2018, so again, now a full year later, where the agency is providing preliminary guidance on a segment of the wage level analysis, how we will evaluate private wage surveys. So you mentioned, you know, insufficient training. What were some of the key discoveries resulting from the training materials that were released? So I think there were two major discoveries uh, with reviewing the training materials. First, as it relates to the interpretation of what constitutes specialty occupation. Uh, some of the guidance that we saw basically reflects an impermissible interpretation of specialty occupation. They're basically instructing officers to interpret the word normally requires a bachelor's degree to now require always requires a bachelor's degree when reviewing the Occupational Outlook Handbook or when reviewing documents and information provided by an employer. Secondly, USCIS, we see them taking a overly narrow position that a specialty occupation only exists for a position with a specific title degree. So whereby in the past where you have an employer that has a occupation, let's say bioinformatics, and may require a degree in bioinformatics, biology, computer science, or related field, the agency we see is now requesting or wants to see evidence of one specific title degree for that occupation, bioinformatics only. But that doesn't really reflect the reality on the ground. I mean, the bottom line is that you could get a degree in a lot of different technical areas and still gain the requisite technical skills to perform a particular role without having your job title match exactly what's listed on your degree, right? You bring up a really good point. And in fact, AILA's Administrative Litigation Task Force is reviewing this reinterpretation very closely. And I would say that, you know, they're already considering a litigation strategies with respect to how the agency's reinterpretation of specialty occupation is impermissible and really goes outside the bounds of the regulations and the relevant statute. So when we say thousands of cases are being held, these are petitions for that employers have filed for individuals just being held f- for months and months because the government hasn't rolled out their training properly. Is that right? So we don't know long, how long they are held, but we do know that through the email chain that essentially the Nebraska Service Center has raised to their supervisors that these cases are being held. Uh, and we do see it in other emails as well that premium processing cases are being held. So great question. Essentially, we're seeing the agency uh, confirm that they are holding cases uh, resulting in processing delays that are ultimately felt by stakeholders, by U.S. employers, by uh, foreign workers who are essentially trying to follow the law. 
while they ask for further guidance and clarification. But the real world consequence of that is people can't go get their driver's licenses. In some instances, they can't go travel internationally. I understand kind of like what, you know, where Storm is going with this. The fact that it's being almost unnecessarily held, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. I think... um, you know, it, it, it's troubling. It's troubling oh, to yeah. kind of... I think there was this belief that the agency, or at least they wanted to convey to the public, we've got it under control, it's business as usual. But the emails really convey a very different scenario playing out at the service centers, playing out across the country with adjudicators. There was confusion, there was lack of guidance, there was lack of clarity. And so it's very concerning now recognizing that the adjudicators were in fact not only holding cases, but they were moving forward with adjudications in other cases, lacking the very guidance they needed in order to do those adjudications in a timely, consistent, and efficient manner. Yeah, so this is really informative. Considering everything that we've been able to to find through this production, what next? So I should say that at the moment we have AILA's FOIA committee, which is doing a deeper dive into the FOIA documents that have been produced. Uh, and working with AILA's Administrative Litigation Task Force to develop litigation strategies around how these documents might be used going forward. I should note that individuals already, I've been made aware, are utilizing the documents released in the FOIA production to file supplemental authority for pending H-1B litigation. So I believe that they have cases that are already pending relating to erroneously denied H-1B petitions, likely on the interpretation of specialty occupation mm-hmm. and are able to be utilizing the documents the training manuals that we just discussed uh, as evidence of the agency's shift in adjudication practices, shifts in how it's interpreting specialty occupation without providing the public with notice and comment. So Diane, you know, I, I, I think I really want to take this opportunity to not only thank you for coming by and talking about this very, very important topic, but just in general, thanking you and Ayla for a very valuable service that you and Ayla provide, particularly for immigration practitioners, as you know, these are very kind of like unpredictable, volatile times, and we definitely depend very heavily on your your advocacy and guidance. But, you know, for those who are listening, how can people support Ayla? so that Ayla can continue to achieve these similar victories. Yeah, so there are a couple of ways. I first and foremost would point folks to the American Immigration Council. That is the organization that litigated on behalf of Ayla. They are a nonprofit organization and can uh, receive funding and donations from the public. So your fu- your funding and donations will support their further litigation efforts, their practice advisories, and all the great work that they do, research, data analysis, among other things. For folks that are immigration practitioners, if you're a law student, you can sign up for Ayla membership. We have memberships on an annual basis. Basis. And then finally, if you're a member of the media or the public, uh, if you remember the media, I would encourage you to really dig into these documents to help lift up on behalf of Ayla and the public really the troubling practices that were playing out and continue to play out within the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the shift in adjudication practices without noticing comment, and really helping us as, as stakeholders to express uh, publicly what is happening. And then if you're a member of the public, please get educated about these FOIA materials take a look on our website about what they contain. We are going to be putting out a key summary document. It should be anywhere from two to three pages, which will help to further narrow down what are the key main takeaways from this production. Great. I think that's wonderful, yeah. Thank you so much, Diane. We really appreciate it. Great, thanks so much for having me. For more content and immigration updates, please follow us at eiglaw.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIGNerdsPodcast to join in the conversation. 
Thanks for listening. See you next time.